Oh God, we thank you for we gather this morning in the light of your presence. Christ has come in a humble child and we are invited to bear witness, to be showered by the light that gives us a hope and a future. We ask you, O oh God, that your spirit would surround us and that you would help us to hear these ancient stories so that we might see ourselves as part of it and that we might live as they did, bringing the best of who we are, laying our gifts at your feet, humbling ourselves, and asking what you will do with our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to remind you of something as I begin today to get you thinking about the idea of memory. Last fall here at Knox, we were visited by the Ohio Innocence Project, a legal organization that does amazing work for the exoneration of prisoners in Ohio. They work to free wrongfully accused persons, some of whom have been behind bars for decades. We were visited by three of those individuals. The Ohio Innocence Project puts a lot of work into exposing false memories. The way people tend to misremember past events due to their own mistakes or the way that outside information distorted their memories. Leading questions, exposure to media, or conversation with others often causes people to revise what really happened, even in an event they themselves witnessed or in which they took part. The Ohio Innocence Project showed us how frequently this happens, and sometimes with truly tragic results. In many other life circumstances, the results of false memories are not quite so tragic, but are still worth thinking about. Memory is never simple. One memory researcher, Elizabeth Loftus, says many of us think memory works like a tape recorder. We think that memory captures an event and then we can play it back whenever we want to in exactly the same way. Instead, she says, memory is much more like a Wikipedia page. It is a constructive process. We continually add things to our own memories and so can other people and other outside influences. The constructive way we make memories shows up in how we remember Bible stories. The stories of Christmas fall victim to false memories all the time. And the story of the three kings is perhaps the best example we have. Many of us know this story because of things we learned about it. We know it because of songs we sing, We Three Kings of Orient Are, or because of the opera, Amal and the Night Visitors, or because of any number of church pageants we might have attended, or nativity scenes we set up as a child, or paintings we've seen in a museum. With all of these extra memories around us, 
We are surprised when we open our Bibles to the story and discover what it really says about these visitors to Bethlehem. Let me tell you a few things about the story itself. It turns out that there may not have been three of these visitors. The story itself names that there were three gifts, but it says nothing of three people. The story does not give them names. Some of you might have heard the names Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. That traditional lore originates not in the story itself, but from an obscure verse in Psalm 72. And connecting that verse to this story is something of a stretch. Nowhere does the story say that these visitors were all men, and neither does it claim anywhere that they were kings. The word in Greek for these individuals is magoi, so we most correctly refer to them as magi. It's a word which identifies them as priests, perhaps of a pagan or Zoroastrian origin. It might have been the emperor Constantine, 400 years later, who first popularized the idea that they were kings. As for calling them wise men instead of kings, we could call that into question as well when you think about something that does happen in the story. When these visitors arrive in Jerusalem, they meet King Herod, who was widely known for being ruthless and power-hungry in his leadership, and immediately they ask him if he knows where they can find the real king of the Jews. A question so foolish, it will force Mary and Joseph and the baby to have to flee the country, and it will force these wise men to return home by another road. Now, before you conclude that I am poking holes in this wonderful story just for fun, or in some kind of an effort to ruin it all for you, let me add this. I love this story. I do. I love this story, and I believe that there is truth in it. I love the hymns. I love the paintings. I love the pageants, and I love the operas. And I believe that whatever wisdom the Magi may have lacked in their conversation with Herod was far outweighed by the wisdom they showed in making their faithful journey and worshiping with the Christ. I, am, I admit that it is almost impossible not to add or change details when it comes to telling and retelling a story. Human experience teaches us that. And still, I think there is great value in being as honest as we can about the complicated way we remember things. New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine says something helpful about this. Asked what she thinks of the Bible's different versions of the Christmas story, and there are many. She suggests that we should be neither surprised nor embarrassed to find different tellings of the Christmas story right in the Bible. Neither surprised nor embarrassed. These are perspectives brought by different writers. They had names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And this magnificent story, she suggests, this magnificent story has enough room for each of their points of view. People tell stories according to what was important or remarkable to them. There is no doubt, had any of us visited the manger as a shepherd or a magi ourselves, that we would tell the story according to our own experience. We would include some things and we would leave other things out. That's how people tell stories. So, A.J. Levine says, our role as historians, the role of the historians, is to ask what would these stories have conveyed to the people who first heard them? And our role as readers, our role is to ask what do these stories mean to me? And what have they meant to my community and to my tradition? What have they meant over time and across the globe? If we are honestly asking, what do these stories mean to me? It might be okay to say that there were three kings in the story. Consider the idea that there were kings. What does it mean that the most powerful people in the world should humble themselves before the Christ child and present their most precious gifts? That sounds like a good interpretation. It might also be okay to refer to them as wise men. Consider that it is wise to pursue a dream in faith, to follow a star as they bravely did, and not to spend our whole lives navel-gazing and wondering what if about the greatest dreams of our lives. That too seems like a healthy interpretation. So sometimes what our tradition has added to the story might be good. But sometimes our interpretations have not been good. Constantine, the emperor, he referred to the Magi as kings because he had converted to Christianity and he wanted to spread a narrative that supported pagan kings bowing down to him. It is an interpretation other kings adopted and it led to centuries of bloodshed. It is a memory of the story we would be better off without. So what we are seeing in this story about the Magi is that the way we interpret a story, the way that we remember who we have been in the past, those memories of the past shape our present and our future. How we tell our stories of the past shape what we say about who God wants us to be today and who we are going to become tomorrow. There's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates this idea beautifully. It comes from the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites have now escaped from slavery in Egypt. They have wandered in the wilderness for a period of about 40 years, and finally they have crossed over into the promised land that they have been seeking for so, so long. When they arrive, 
God instructs them in the book of Joshua, chapter 4, saying, set up a pillar of stones, a monument to mark your arrival and to remind you of it. God says that pillar of stones is there for a special purpose. One day their children, who were not with them on the journey, will look at the monument and will ask, what do these stones mean? And that will be a reminder to the elders to teach their children about how God delivered the people from Egypt about how God provided for them as they wandered in the wilderness, and about how God gave them commandments as a way of living together, and about how God guided them into the promised land. This is how they will teach their children who they are, and where they came from, and who God expects them to be. What do these stones mean? It's an awesome question. It's very much like that question A.J. Levine says the Christmas stories cause us to ask. What do these stories mean to me? And what have they meant to my community and to my tradition over time and across the globe? Our children heard it first today. It's the first Sunday in January 2020, and I'm happy to tell you this morning that this week begins the 125th anniversary of Knox Presbyterian Church. You can applaud about that. (laughs) 125 years. There is so much to celebrate when we consider the faithful past of this congregation and how those who went before us have prepared us for an abundant present day we are now sharing and an exciting and rich future. Anniversary celebrations sometimes don't reflect the real richness of a church's history. In my lifetime, and significant church involvement, I've been part of a few church celebrations. I have eaten my share of rubber chicken, and I have drank some bad coffee, and I have listened and read church histories that would lead you to believe that every congregation and the Christian church throughout the world is some sort of religious version of leave it to beaver. And you laugh because we know That's not true. When we look at the real story, like we've tried to take a look at the story of the Magi today, we remember what Jesus really said and what Jesus really did. Jesus kept nothing for himself in his generosity toward others. Jesus always served the poor and needy first and critiqued the rich and powerful who would not come along. Jesus valued religion, but he broke from traditions that stood in the way of love and justice. Jesus took risks. He was the first one to speak up for those in need, regardless of the cost to himself. The history of the church... The history of every church 
may be full of good things, and it is. And because we are human, it is also full of much more timidity and comfort and self-preservation than ever went on in the life of Jesus. The church has been caught on the wrong side of conversations about war and genocide, race and poverty and sexuality, and we have often benefited from circumstances that allow other people to suffer. One of the main critiques made by young people who are not interested in church today is that we are not honest about our history. For that reason and for so many others, I am happy to share with you that the session of Knox Presbyterian Church has been working on a really faithful, wonderful way of remembering who we have been as a people of God. There are great stories about who Knox Church has been in the last 125 years. They deserve to be remembered, and we are going to tell them. There are also realities about who Christians have been, who Presbyterians have been, and who Knox Church has been along with them in the last 125 years. Stories where we could have been better, where we could have done more, or when we were just plain wrong. And that, too, is part of our story. We hope that by remembering our history as honestly as we can, we will do the faithful work of asking, what is God trying to do with us today? And what is God trying to do with us in the future? And those questions are exciting. We'll begin our celebrations the last Sunday of this month with a celebration of music history here at Knox. And by the time of the annual meeting on the first Sunday of next month, the session will be ready to tell you much more about what to expect in the year to come. There are going to be chances to sing music from days gone by and to hear stories of Knox told by our eldest and wisest members so that they can remind us what these stones mean. We will celebrate with food and drink and fellowship, and we will remember and lament times when we have not fully followed in the way of Jesus Christ so that we can meaningfully ask, what does God expect of us today? What does God expect of us in the days to come? And we will take action. It is a really faithful and dynamic way for a people of God to spend an anniversary in the way of the Magi, I hope that we will bring the gifts that we have. We will lay them before God. And we will bow our heads, thanking God for being near to us, just as Jesus was near to them so long ago in the manger. Amen.